My guest on this episode of the Leanne Wood podcast is a fellow podcaster. Russell Todd hosts two podcasts, Podcast Peldroid, which is about the Welsh football team and has been running since 2014. His other podcast covers a subject close to my heart, and that's community development. The Community Development Podcast shares learning, good practice and global perspectives and connects community development practitioners. This is Russell's area of work. We'll be touching on the importance of community and indeed of football in building a Wales that is better than this. We will also talk about someone who unites both community and sport, as well as many other aspects of our cultural life. And that's a man who has had great influence on my political thinking. That's Raymond Williams. Russell, Raymond Williams was a giant of a thinker in the decades up to his passing in the 1980s, and he remains an important figure to so many people who see themselves as progressives on the left, supporters of Welsh independence, socialists, and many more. Can you start by telling us why you think Raymond Williams is important to us today, and why more people should be aware of the contribution he made to Welsh political thinking? It's a big question. Thank you for having me on, first of all. I think in large part, it's the sort of the timelessness of what he wrote about. And I think as well, that sense you, you talked about uniting people on the left. I think what's interesting is that people try and maybe have indeed tried and continue to try to sort of declaim him or to try to pin him down to a particular sort of grouping or a particular cohort or something. And he's quite evasive as well. He was in the Labour Party briefly and he worked on behalf of the Labour Party, but he joined Plaid Cymru. He fraternised with the communists at Cambridge, where he was always an outsider was a student and as a lecturer. You know, he fought in the war, but then he was a committed pacifist thereafter. He was born in the border country, but referred to himself as a Welsh European when I'm not aware a huge number of other people were calling themselves Europeans or certainly Welsh Europeans at the time. And I think what's interesting then as well in that timelessness, since Brexit, that concept of Welsh European seems to have even more currency than it perhaps had for a number of years in between now and when he first titled himself in that way. So there's a certain, like I said, a certain sort of evasiveness to him, born in a, a rural or on the surface of it, a rural community and an agricultural pastoral community. But he had huge passion for and, and attachment to industrial communities then that you would see, and he talks in his writings about seeing the kind of the glow from the furnaces over the, the top of the, the heads of the valleys into, into Pandy where he was, beneath the Black Mountains. So he, he just has this timelessness and these ability to, I think, if people take time to study him, and it can be a little bit dense, but if you persist, if you keep chipping away, then I think you can find a lot of people, wherever they are, maybe not wherever they are on the political spectrum, but on a large part of the political spectrum and different aspects of society or culture, whatever their background is, geographically, demographically speaking, or whatever, can find something that I think really potentially really resonates with them on an individual level. And then when they see themselves in their own community and in their own surroundings, whether that's defined by work or political activity or whatever it might be. So I think it's just that breadth of appeal. And like I said, that timelessness, and he just keeps he keeps kind of coming around. And I think now we're at a time where he's really coming around and almost kind of like the apex of that re-engagement then that people are having with him. And I think that's fascinating, really. It is fascinating. Raymond Williams emphasised the importance of community and Wales, of course, is a community of communities. And I've always believed that there is incredible power within our communities. And he believed that. And you do, too, don't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's, you know, the core tenet of community development is we say that you start with the people. 
And on one level, perhaps that sounds a bit glib or a bit simplistic, but actually, if you strip that back, you know, more of our decision-making processes actually started from that point, then I think we get better decisions made about the things that affect our lives, whether that's to do with a local park or a local PTA or, or the club committee, or whether that's some of the, dare I say, the bigger issues and more structurally related issues to do with, I don't know, the NHS or climate emergency and the climate crisis and so on. In terms of how Williams wrote, both in terms of his fiction, semi-autobiographical fiction, but also in his, his more academic writing he did fundamentally believe in the power that people when they come together and I think that's the thing that collective and that communal coming together not just about leaving people on their own to get on with it but making efforts to bring people together I think can really bring lasting profound benefits for people and communities that was one of the things we talked about celebrated you know what he would refer to as working class institutions and that might be libraries astutes reading rooms co-ops societies communities would raise bursaries and monies to send young people off to university and college, whether it's the International Brigade, whatever it might be, but those expressions of those collectivist expressions of working class kind of solidarity and identity and and values. But critically, they were autonomously run. They didn't get patronised. They didn't get taken over and co-opted by the state, by government, by, you know, whomever. That, I think, is really, really important. And I think we've lost that. So when I look at community development, I'll be honest, I took a while to get my head around this because it can be hard to see this through the wood for the trees, as it were, when when you're immersed in communities with boots on the ground. Actually, if we let people come together and make the mistakes and get things wrong on occasions and to learn and to give them time, then I think what you end up with are much more resilient communities, empowered communities or whatever the next kind of governmental buzz phrase or strap line is going to be. A friend of mine, Andy Green, who I work on a social enterprise with, a gross social capital, he's a big fan of William Gibson, the sci-fi writer, and he often quotes, the future is already here, it's just been unevenly distributed. And I think it's that sense that we don't have to reinvent things, certainly in Welsh communities, certainly, certainly where, where you live, where you're from, you know, we had solutions to some of the problems that we're facing now. If we could, if we could recognise that, then we'd be doing ourselves a, a favour, frankly. It's about keeping the learning alive, isn't it? And making sure that we learn from our history and so many of our communities they built up strength through struggling through adversity and it's that strength that we need and that resilience that we need in our communities today as well, isn't it? So in terms of building a strong and successful and resilient Wales, that unit of the community is essential. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. Because at the heart of that, what you tend to find is that there's trust and there's a, a mutual respect between people. Now, this isn't to say that everybody agrees, that everybody is the same, that they're all on the same page. There's not. And I think what something like border country, for example, and perhaps like a lot of people, I, I don't know about yourself, but you know, that was my sort of, that was my gateway drug, if you like, to, 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 to Williams. When you read that, I think what it does really, really well, and it applies today as it did in, again, without kind of you know, going into too much detail or giving any spoilers, maybe, it has a, a fractured time thing. It kind of goes back and it goes forward, it goes back to the 20s and the general strike, and then it goes back to the late 50s, early 60s. And, and I think all of these things still apply is that what it really does is it shows how communities can be full of awkward elbows. It's not people getting on all the time. It's people having debate, having discussion. And two of the main characters in border country ultimately grow apart. I'm not sure they fall out. They have disagreements. They have a few rows. They have a few little temper tantrums. I don't think they fundamentally fall out, but they grow apart. And that's fine because new people come in. And I think that's that's something that's really, really important when we're talking about resilient communities. This isn't about all being harmonious and holding hands and hugging trees. And there's a danger that we romanticize it. It's hard and people fall out and they disagree and it puts strain on people as well. 
But it comes back to that thing that Margaret Mead said, wasn't it? You know, never doubt a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And that's, you know, you look at a lot of what has happened in Wales, progressively, socially, culturally, whatever it might be, it's been a small group. You know, look at the football team. It's only a small group of players that we've got to choose from, <laughs> you know, for the, for the, both for the men and the women. And the women are doing amazing as well. And, you know, they're, they're catching up with the men in many respects in terms of what they're achieving on the pitch. But it's a small cohort of players, again. And I think that's something to... To bear in mind, we do punching above our weight to labour the sporting <laughs> metaphor. We, we do that really, really well. And I think sometimes we forget that. Raymond Williams was interested in his sport as well, wasn't he? It wasn't all serious. Mm. Can you explain how football and Welsh politics and Raymond Williams all fit together for you? And can you say why football and the way in which Welsh fans in particular celebrate football is important to Wales? I think, so one of the things I would do is actually draw people's attention to a short story that you wrote. It's in the, so the Library of Wales series on Parthian. It's got things like So Long Heck the Beb and Border Country and Margaret Evans and Jack Jones, Black Parade, all those books. There's a, a couple of anthologies to do with sport. There's, I think it's one of short stories as well, and he's in that as well, writing about the anti-apartheid movement, which is really interesting. You're much more overtly political, if you like. And it's, it's called Paria, and he wrote it when he was still in his late teens. And it's about a footballer coming to be scouted. And he's playing, I think it's in the North Monmouthshire League. It's Again, it's semi-fictional. And it's just a terrific story. But at its heart, it starts talking about amateur rules and the risk of the... Because the scouts come from Cardiff City, the temptations of the big city, an upright young man, that kind of thing. So it's a fascinating insight into that still tensions that still exist, I think, in football in Britain in the 30s between the amateur game and the professional game. But he loved his sport. He loved watching sport on TV. So that's a fairly popular pastime still today for us he didn't have netflix then you've got netflix now that kind of thing so he wasn't forever you know up to his eyes reading and writing and critiquing yates or, or whoever it was but i think what he liked about it was the fact it brought people together and i think if we look at something like the red wall then i'm old enough to remember i was talking about someone who was a swansea fan and he's in his early 60s now and he was saying how he used to remember he would have to keep quiet when he was coming up to wells games in cardiff because he didn't want his accent to single him out and where we had those problems which is maybe our community of communities, you know, the less positive uh, aspect of that, perhaps. But that's largely been consigned to history. But not only that, you've got people setting up groups, things like the Rainbow Wall. You've got Wal Gorham and Noad creating more safer, inclusive spaces for, for female fans, for you know, fans who identify as LGBTQ+, for example, and so on and so forth. The Welsh language is utterly uncontested. No one argues with it. It's still contested in all sorts of aspects of life, isn't it? It's only Welsh football and choirs where it isn't contested really in any way whatsoever. And a massive amount of thanks has to go to the FAW with that. But what that red wall is, I think, is an institution. And it's a working class, primarily, institution that is autonomous, that has been set up by itself, not isolated from external influences. It draws on things. It you know, engages with others outside it, for example, like the authorities running the game. But it's, it's autonomous and it, it's self-organised and it's essentially evolved itself under its own steam. So I think Williams would absolutely love it. And I think he would see it and list it alongside a lot of those other working class institutions that he also wrote about. And it's fun as well. So again, it's, it's not about being earnest and, like I said, overly academic about it all. Let's have a laugh. My friend Dan Evans 
wrote in Planet a couple of years back around Wales Away fans being this independent travelling state lads. And quite unashamedly, he talks about it being, it can be a bit debauched, it can be a bit drunken. But then what do we see last week in Brussels? The fans cleaning up after themselves. So it's about doing these things, having this autonomy, but recognising the responsibility for the integrity of that institution. And that has to be worked out. It's not for others to pick up the pieces. And I think that's incredible. And I think if we could translate that to other parts of Welsh society, then I think we see a huge amount of improvement in all sorts of aspects of life, frankly. The way you're talking about that, it sounds as if you're advocating it as like a microcosm of what Welsh society could become. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, where there's room for people to like other sports and to enjoy other sports and to go and watch other sports. The whole kind of rugby versus football thing leaves me cold. One of the things I love about it is look at all the flags and it's little villages. It's Cumslinvest and it's Wattsville and it's Bagist and it's Dufferin Nantlet. It, it's these small communities and it, it reflects the, the point you said at the start about Wales being a community of communities and it celebrates it. But rather than go to go to war over it, it's kind of like, so tell me about what's great about your, your little Mr. Squad. I'll tell you what's great about mine and you can celebrate what's great. And I think that's really important rather than it be something where it sets out the parameters for some sort of turf war, as it were. And I think that's really, really, really good. And I think what you find then is that you find it spilling into things like Bangor 1876 as a Phoenix club being set up when fans objected to how Bangor City was being run. And ultimately, I think, I think it went to the wall. I'm not quite sure where it stands at the minute. And fans just went, Do you know what, let's set up our own club. You look at Merthyr Town, it's fan owned. What people don't tend to know is that the supporters trust called in a debt from the previous owners that ultimately sent that club to the wall. Now, if we talk about autonomy, about responsibility, about accountability, that's incredibly brave because what it necessitated was the club having to drop like three or four divisions or whatever it was in order to start again under fan ownership. So again, this is the thing. This isn't about rose-tinted nostalgia. That's really hard, you know? because nobody wants to see the club get relegated. Nobody wants to see the club get fold and have to start again. And it's scratching around all the players leave. You've got to sign more. That's really, really difficult. And they have the scars to prove it. Williams doesn't shy away from any of that, really. He celebrates it, but he doesn't shy away from it. And I think it's important to recognise, like I said, it's, it's difficult decisions being made. It's awkward elbows. It's all that kind of stuff. It's a little bit of pain before you get any anything to celebrate and any joy further down the line. Maybe Merthyr fans are going to be waiting a while. I don't know. But ultimately, it's their club. And I think it's a wonderful success story. Yeah, ultimately, and people kind of argue about whether they should should be in the Welsh pyramid or the English pyramid. Ultimately, because the fans own it, it's their decision. And I think that's the bit that's worth celebrating rather than criticising which decision they come to. It's the fact that they have the right. Too many of us don't have the right to make decisions that affect us. Now's not the time, I don't think, but I could point to something with respect to the local park where I live in Cardiff that people feel deeply, deeply disenfranchised over in simple democratic terms about the planning exercise and about how much information is made available and so on. The fact that those Merthyr fans and the Bangor 1876 is another one has got that autonomy, I think is something that's worth celebrating. And again, if we could replicate that, then I think we'd, we'd be a lot better, certainly better than we, than we tend to find ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Reading Raymond Williams can be a bit difficult sometimes. I found it really hard work when I first tried. Through your work with the Valley's Ale Trails and the Philosophers in Pubs and the Raymond Williams Foundation, you've made real efforts to make his work much more accessible to many more people. Why have you spent so much time and energy doing this? Why not? I think I think certainly things like the Philosophy in Pubs, and I owe a debt to um, a friend, Jan Hyten, who I know you've met because I think she interviewed you, didn't you, for, for one of the, the William Centenary activities. I think what it comes back to, like I was saying earlier about debate and discussion, social media is great. I've made, I've made and really good connections and, and converted those into friendships. Social media is great for that, you know. 
but it can be a sewer and it can be that echo chamber and it can be a race to who can slag each other off the quickest. And you only got to see some of the stuff that you get replies to you, which I think is just disgusting to see that. And I think we're losing perhaps the art of debate and discussion and the ability to disagree. And so some of the philosophy in pubs is, again, it had democracy in, in the truest sense of the word, I suppose, kind of embedded in it, in its methodology. So it's not just going to a pub and, uh, and by the way, pubs is, is short for public spaces. It's not necessarily a pub. It can be in, in anywhere, really, you know, a park bench or wherever. I like the pub personally, but other places are available. And it's not just about coming together and company gums over a pint or two. There is a certain methodology and it's about giving people the opportunity to have their say and then to reflect on what has been said not about trying to win the argument, not about trying to convert people to your worldview. So that I think is really good. And it's people who get involved in it eventually, they might find it a little bit awkward, a little bit alien, a little bit out of their comfort zone. But a lot of the people who go through it and persist with it find that they listen better, that they're able to engage in debates, just, you know, arguments much more constructively. So if nothing else, there's that practical element. But you meet lots of people as well. But things like the ale trails, again, I mean, you look at how culture is produced and, and William's talked a lot about it. And as you say, some of it can be really dense. But pubs were a great place for that. But again, he, he wouldn't romanticise that. It wasn't sort of, sort of, oh, weren't pubs lovely? Because actually, a lot of women weren't welcome in pubs. A lot of people from ethnic minorities weren't welcome. If you were gay, you weren't welcome in a lot of pubs. So he's not romanticising it. He would reject a distinction between high and low culture, but he didn't do away with the sense of there's good and bad expressions and forms of culture. And pubs, what's and all, were really, really good places, still are, of course, places where culture gets reproduced. And again, autonomous working class institutions, albeit far, far from perfect. So what we try to do with the Ale Trails is to celebrate that, really. Pubs need all the help they can get. They needed it before the pandemic. They need it, you know, trebly so now. And what we want to do is just bring to attention of people who perhaps don't get a chance to, to roam and explore the valleys. It's got some incredible pubs. You know, the opportunity to do that without perhaps having to have a designated driver or having to be on the last train home at, I don't know, half past eight or half nine or whatever ridiculous time it is. Get a few people from Cardiff and Newport above the M4. Get people from valley to valley, actually, for that matter. And to just to celebrate that, bring people together. And if people have a good time and have a few beers, then great. But what happens when those serendipities and that kind of alchemy, when you bring people together, which William celebrated so well and so much, what happens when that happens? And I think that's the thing that I, I kind of like. And that's what good community work is about. It's about bringing people together and just seeing what sparks can fly. Not always the sparks you're expecting or the sparks you want. But again, we shouldn't want to even this all out and polish off the rough edges. Let's leave some of those awkward elbows in there because I think ultimately we're, we create better, more resilient communities if that's what we do. And that's what we're trying to do with it. We haven't done much with the trails this last couple of years for obvious reasons, but we just felt that the opportunity to work with the foundation, who I've been doing a little bit of work with over the last couple of years, was too good an opportunity not to engage with them. And it just gets the, the, the ball rolling again with respect to the trails before we have a proper full relaunch of authentic ale trails, pub trails next, next year. So all these wonderful little places, they're worth visiting and celebrating. So that's what we want to do. And I think we'd like them to be educational so we can educate people about some of the histories of these pubs, about the other things that you encounter on the route that's to do with industrial heritage or cultural heritage or whatever it might be. So, yeah, we'd like to think they're done in Williams's image. If you're around today, you might pop on one of them and come along and, and, and have a couple of pints, maybe. I think he'd be there like a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For those who despair at current political developments, the return of trickle-down economics and reverse Robin Hood economics, the flipping of positions on fossil fuels, removing the cap from bankers' bonuses, there's so much more we could say. Raymond Williams would have undoubtedly had a message of hope. What do you think his message might be for us where he's still with us? And where do you see the hope today? 
I mean, at the risk of, again, sounding a bit glib, I think his message of hope would be not lose hope, to, to remain hopeful. I mean, he was an optimist. I think I am, actually. I can be a bit a grumpy optimist on occasions. And like you said, there's an awful lot when you look around that makes you want to go to a desert island somewhere and just put it all behind you. But I think where I find some hope is that if you look at something like the pandemic, which I'm not going to claim was a, was a good thing by any means, it would be crass to say so, obviously. But I think it's important to try to find silver linings and to point out where you find them. But this sense that a lot of people, because they were essentially stuck at home in their communities, I think a lot of people have reconnected with things in their immediate locality that perhaps they had taken for granted previously, that they hadn't noticed or they'd overlooked, or just that call that white noise of working and commuting and shopping and consuming and whatever else it was just distracted them. From, and these things that are kind of what I call kind of critically mundane, and we, we don't notice they're gone until they're gone. And I think people have reconnected with that. Where that then has a social aspect where it strengthened people's bonds and, and new groups have been set up and friendships forged and people talk about the neighbourliness of it and things like that. I think people have found those nourishing. They have found those enjoyable. They found them meaningful. They have enjoyed putting something in and then having something out, that reciprocity. And one of the things that really does give me hope, and I've had a little bit of work to do with things like four-day week campaigns and basic income, is that I think the pandemic gave some of us, not all of us, you look at key workers and their experience and absolutely can work to the bone sort of thing, not for them. Some of us, however, we had a glimpse behind this curtain of, I don't know what you call it, like a post-work future, where work isn't this dogmatic all-consuming thing that makes us ill and all the rest of it. We've had a little glimpse behind that curtain and people didn't suddenly all develop drug habits and drink habits and they did mutual aid. They tended to the garden. They looked after the environment. They looked after each other. They learned new skills, all those kind of things. You recognize that actually people will, by and large, some people need more help, more support. And that's where I think community work is great because it helps people build that capacity. It helps in terms of mentoring, positive role models, all those sorts of things. But ultimately, most people use that time constructively. And I think that gives me a little bit of hope that maybe we can find alternative ways to construct our society and do it from communities. And when he talks about places being community of communities, we all have this deep attachment to place, don't we? I mean, it's in America, they say, how much do you earn? And in England, which school did you go to? In Wales, it's, well, so where are you from then? That, that kind of connection with place is deep and it's too entrenched. And it's because we, we, we subsistently worked on the land or we worked under the land or we lived under these menacing coal tips and all the rest of it. You could never escape that. That means we have this deep attachment to place and the land and geography. And where he talks about, Williams, about how ideas and movements emerge from place. They emerge from somewhere being in situ. You don't just then, and I think this is always a lesson for government is, you don't just try and replicate them somewhere else. You have to try to find a scale, but how you do that is allowing them to federate. Isel Williams from Cumhuriyet Brofistinog, that's very much the motivation behind their project, Poncho Kennedal, Bridging the Nation, that actually has been funded, but everyone else has kind of just let them get on with it. And they want to build allies and they want to build that communalism across what on the surface of it, Pandi, Blina Fistinog, on lots of levels, very, very different communities. When you strip it back, not really, not really. And, you know, and I think it's great that you've got an organization like that being entrusted with some funding to go and build those alliances, to build those coalitions, to help ideas federate. That is giving me a little bit of hope. And he's, he's good for that. If you are feeling like you're losing a bit of hope or you, you are sick to the back teeth of the world and what's coming out of the news or what you read on social media or what, then, I don't know, pick up Long Revolution or, you know, the novel Loyalties. Politics and Letters is a wonderful collection of stuff. You can usually find something that makes you think, yeah, OK, it is worth fighting on. There's resources of hope as well, of course. Resources of hope, yeah, 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 yeah. Packed full of plenty of reasons and arguments to carry on, carrying on. Russell, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for your insights. I've been really interested to talk to you. 
I'd like to say Diolch to those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast supporting subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood Podcast.